When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. Hang Up and Listen is brought to you by Harry's, the new shaving company that offers German-engineered blades, well-designed handles, and shipping right to your door, all at a fraction of the price of other razors. Visit harrys.com and use the promo code HANGUP. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate Sports Podcast Hang Up and Listen for the week of July 14th, 2014. On this week's show, we're going large with two big topics. Stefan's eyes are wide. We'll talk about Germany's one nothing win over Argentina. Oh, 1-0, sorry in the World Cup final. The Germans' dominance of the tournament, Lionel Messi's sad golden ball victory. It might have been the saddest, most goldenest ball ever. Um, And everything else that caught our eye over the past month in the World Cup. We'll then discuss LeBron James's move back to Cleveland and the method he used to announce it, an undecision-like as told to SA and Sports Illustrated. We'll assess LeBron's motives, the shape of his new contract, and the fallout from that deal and the rest of the NBA. Finally, in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we'll look at Major League Baseball at midseason, including the upside-down American League East and the continued dominance of pitching over hitting. Will there be snubs? Snubs! <laughs> there might be snubs. Probably not snubs, though. Uh, joining me in Washington, D.C. is Stefan Fatsis, the author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic, and the Friday sports correspondent for NPR's All Things Considered. Hello, Stefan. Hi, Josh. We should do this from Washington State once, so you could say joining me in Washington State. <laughs> Major uh, expenditure for Slate for worth a, it for a very very important worth joke. Um, we could just say that we're in Washington State and not actually be there. That would save Slate a lot. Theater of, money. of the mind, folks. Theater of the mind. Uh, with us from New York, 
actually with us from Washington State. It's uh, Mike Pesca, the host of Slate's Daily Podcast, The Gist with Mike Pesca. How are those uh, delicious Washington State apples, Mike? Oh, they're they're just round and <laughs> golden or possibly red. New York has great apples, too. Huskies. You're going to go see the Huskies? Oh, love the Huskies. Great one love for the Sounders last Puget night. Puget Sound. Did you like that Sounders game? Dempsey scored. He was almost offside, but he... He was barely on. How did Yedlin do? But Pesca could tell us he was there in person. How did DeAndre the Yedlin do, Mike? <laughs> yeah, the Sounders. Today on the local public radio station, they said, what are you going to do after the World Cup? Are you going to watch other sports, catch up on chores, or do something <laughs> else? Like, you, don't even, you, don't even, you don't even mention the MLS. Like, the, it's not even an option. Post-World Cup, where do you take your soccer excitement? To another sport? Like, how about the same sport? No, they don't know. Soccer mania in America leaves chores undone. No one does chores for a month. I'm going to bathe. <laughs> cut, cut to a goat who hasn't been fed for a week. All right, first, erratum from last week, as many people pointed out, we didn't really get the whole Dutch Flemish thing straight. Um, Claire Knudsen, we Lada. joking. Well, if you're joking, you still have to be right. Um, she notes that Dutch. That's not true. A lot of Leno's <laughs> monologues are based on misinformation. Uh, Dutch and Flemish are, in fact, the same language Ugh. that have been given different names. Uh, some dialectical differences, no more so than the differences between British and American English. Also, she notes at the end, Walloons speak French. I think we got like eight different things wrong in that. Uh, Isn't that the Walloon problem, really? Joke. Shouldn't they speak Walloon? So thanks to everyone who pointed that out. We will not make any mistakes in the future. Are any more podcast. jokes about that particular conflict slash region slash quarterfinalist? I All think right. they actually have one of the teams that played in that non-FIFA, non-World Cup. Oh, do they? Yeah. Let's I could not, be wrong about that, too. Let's though. not, yeah. let's not yeah. speculate about yeah. which team out that would have been. Um, Germany beat Argentina 1-0 on Sunday on a wonderful goal by Mario Goetze in extra time. Let's hear how it sounded in Deutschland. Schöne. Der kommt an! Mach ihn! Mach ihn! Er macht ihn! Mario Goetze! Das ist doch Wahnsinn! Und da ist gekommen dieser eine Moment für Mario Goetze! Da ist alles andere egal! Irre! Der Bundespräsident steht! Die Kanzlerin! Das nächste Joker-Tor für Deutschland! Helmut Rahn! Gerd Müller! Andy Breme! Mario Götze! Ist das die Viererreihe? Those Germans were so happy. Happy, happy, happy Germans. I love a happy German. Fourth uh, World Cup victory, first since 1990. And they were deserving winners, Stefan, um, though Argentina and Lionel Messi did have a bunch of chances to, I think, steal a victory from a superior team. What did you think of the final? I think it was a just outcome. Sports often don't have just outcomes. This was a just outcome. Well, soccer, I think, more than most sports, is, free, is frequently unjust. Frequently unjust. That yeah. has been chronicled, yes. Though World Cup finals tend to be reasonably just. I mean, we haven't had a Costa Rica win the World Cup, so the big teams are usually there at the end. That's as hates Costa Rica. Headline. And this was completely reasonable and fair outcome. I thought Germany played them and I think the broader narrative the broader story of about Germany and how they've gotten good is the one that people need to read and learn more about that after the Germans 
bungled the 2000 European Championship. They sat down and said, our development system blows. We're going to spend a billion euros in the next decade or so. We're going to overhaul everything. We are going to travel the world asking other countries, how do they develop players? This is Germany. And they completely humbled themselves and admitted that our system isn't working. And they created a national development system requiring all first and second division teams to have academies. Then on top of that, creating other academies that pluck players out of the academies and give them additional training. And basically from age eight on, you've got people looking at your soccer players. So America, if you want to do this, and I think Jurgen Klinsmann does want to do this, you have to start A, training coaches at young levels, B, creating systems that allow players to actually specialize, which is anathema to so much of what we do in youth sports, and C, spend the money. You know, tell kids you're going to be a soccer player, you're going to be a national team soccer player, you've got to start when you're eight. Are we ready for that? I don't know. So it's pretty funny that um, they actually mentioned this on the ESPN post-game show, the one where they loosen their ties so you know that their opinions are a little bit more free-flowing, that if we were talking about football or basketball like this, we would say it's like gone crazy, crazy. it's gone amok, that how dare we um, you know, start recruiting kids at age eight. There's outrage about, you know, ranking middle school basketball players, um, you know, the various services that do that. And yet when Germany does it and it's a success, we talk about how smart it is. Um, maybe that's because it's happening in another country and it's not our children. But I think, um, you know, you're right that this is what it would take. We've started by bringing lots of Germans over here, which seems like a good step given how uh, well the Germans have done and, you know, getting German-American players. Maybe that seems uh, prescient now. But, Mike, what do you think about that disconnect between how we talk about the German uh, genius and imposing things that we might not want imposed on our children? Actually, Josh, I think it seems Prussian now because it's not American. I think that there are other ways to make a World Cup final. And what I think America will do is the way America's always had success in sports. It's easier to do what German did if you're the type of country, which is, say, almost every other country, that has a position of minister of sport, right? Right. In America, Americans send athletes to the Olympics, for instance. It's not that America does it. We don't underwrite our athletes to that extent. We rely on, say, the free market and capitalism. And I do think that if the United States makes the leap from somewhere around the teens, which is where we are, which is if you're in the teens, you lose in the first round of the knockout round. That is a just result to for a team that is not in the top eight. If you want to get in the top eight, you need to be a top eight team. And we're, we could get there. And then once we get there, if it was... Argentina versus the United States instead of Argentina versus Belgium on that weekend of the July 4th. Things would go crazy and more and more kids would want to play football or soccer, as we call it, and then they'd make millions of dollars or be lured to make millions of dollars internationally. It will all take care of itself. You don't need academies. You don't need to get the eight-year-old into an academy. It will just become really clear that it's a way to get a college scholarship and even untold riches. No, they can't go to college, Mike. That's the point. They can. We could could win this. If we kill uh, the world in basketball, which the world plays, and we do it based on players who go to college and then play for national teams and no one even comes close to us in international competition. It's not just because of the head start. You know, after 40 years, the head start, sure, the head start mattered up until the 70s, but, you know, for the last 20, 30 years, the head start's not getting us this uh, basketball dominance. It's because all our kids love basketball and the best players pay, play basketball and colleges serve as a uh, as a uh, minor leagues, and that's exactly can happen with soccer. Why can't it? Uh, we went big picture really fast here, you guys. We did. Yeah. 
Yeah. We we went from X's and O's to maybe letters that aren't even in the alphabet. Maybe they're in the Flemish alphabet. I don't know. To BAs and MFAs, yes. No, no MFAs. So so I discovered that if you watch ESPN long enough, then you can see the rebroadcast of the uh, World Cup game, like, you know, at least two or three times. So mm-hmm. uh, maybe the second or the third time that I saw the game again and had it on in the background, sort of had forgotten how good Argentina looked in the beginning of that game. Um, Lavezzi, who was mysteriously subbed off at halftime, looked really strong and was getting them into good attacking positions. And Messi had this unbelievable run down the right side of the field early in the game where he just ran by Hummels, the German central defender who's talked about as one of the best players in the tournament. And Steve McManaman of ESPN was like, this is going to happen all game long. The Germans are too slow. Messi is just going to be taking these guys on. And it just didn't happen. And I think what did happen is the Germany's depth won out. And this connects back to that point about the strength of numbers for Germany and the fact that they've built this program so strong since 2000 is Argentina comes in the tournament touted as having these four great attackers. And then Di Maria gets hurt. He doesn't play in the final. Aguero is also kind of hurt and comes on the second half and doesn't do that much. And Argentina just doesn't have the bodies to replace these guys. They look tired after that initial push. I think Messi was clearly not as strong as he'd been earlier in the tournament. Then if you look at Germany, they bring in this guy, Kramer, who gets concussed, which we can talk about later. He's in for Sammy Kadira, who comes up um, lame with an injury. But then when Kadira goes out and when Kramer goes out, they bring in this guy, Andre Schurla, who um, provides the cross on the winning goal, who's been one of their best players in the tournament. They bring on Mario Goetze, who's one of the top you know, young players in the world. 22 years old. As a substitute as well. I think well. Schurler's like 23. And so in a long tournament, a grueling tournament, um, you know, month long, it just seems like Germany had the most guys. And these guys all play together. A lot of them play together at Bayern Munich. It just seemed like they had these advantages that no other team in this tournament could counter. And those are some of the same advantages we said about Spain last year, last World Cup, I should say. That's true. It did seem that as I looked at all the other teams, the Netherlands had some nice flashes, but it seemed like Germany was the one great team that was also a great collection of players. And there was no other team even close. There were teams with great players and without the guys to back them up. And there were teams that played coherently, but without great players. Germany was the only one with both. And Germany was one without the transcendent superstar. There was no Messi. There was no Neymar. There was no James on that team. And, you know, that speaks to the depth. Uh, Barney Ronan had a terrific uh, post-game story in The Guardian in which he said that Germany is the most perfectly calibrated, most relentlessly first-world system for producing high-class footballers yet devised, a piece of intelligent design that has now flowered to its logical endpoint. He noted that on the current team, Thomas Müller, Tony Kroos, they were all under 13 when Germany overhauled the program. There were a lot of there were several other players that fit that bill as well. I mean, Mesut Ozil was like was his 24. I mean, you go on and on. The, 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 so many of the key players were 24 and under. Yeah, a lot of them were on the same U21 team that Fabian Johnson right. was also on. So that means that the U.S. has at least one 23rd of a World Cup World Cup winning caliber. Uh, roster. All right, let's take a quick break. We'll come back and talk more about Messi, Brazil, etc. But first, a word from our sponsor, Harry's, which provides a great shaving experience for a fraction of the price. Stefan is caressing his face. He might notice that my face is a little smoother than usual. Mm. I am. I have a love-hate relationship with shaving, and by love-hate, I mean hate, <laughs> it's hate. my own face. I mean hate-hate. <laughs> I hate my face. I hate shaving. I don't do it often, but I have been 
shaving. What are, what are you handing me? It's a credit card. So that you can do the pesca test. Oh, I can do the pesca test? Yeah. How does that sound? Smooth. It sounds smooth. smooth. Okay, good. I was worried that I would be less smooth than Pesca. Being less smooth than, than Pesca, that guy's a, you're a swarthier, a swarthier gentleman. But I'm, that, that, is that smoothness? Does that correlate to smoothness? There are the smooth swarthy and the scabrous <laughs> swarthy. And what are you, Mike? I'm a self-assessment. Scabrous. I don't know. Scabrous. Is that how you pronounce the word scabrous? Scabrous. 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 Let's say. Scabrous. There you go. Scabrous. <laughs> um... It's weird. That's a weird word because you want a bumpy, rough-hewn word, but it also means like scabby, doesn't it? Or at least seems to say scabby. It, it does so, seem yeah. like a, it sounds that way. But in both ways, Harry Shavers will not leave you. Scabrous. All right. Well said, robot voice. Um, the shaving cream, the blades, it does lead to a, a smoother a smoother finish, and it's led me to shave more than I have otherwise. Um, so that is my strongest endorsement possible. Harry's leads me to shave more than I would otherwise. I don't like shave. to shave. shave. <laughs> uh, that's harrys.com. You can use our promo code HANGUP. Save $5 off your first purchase. Do not forget that promo code because you do not want to forget promo. that. Uh, you don't want to forget that uh, that extra $5. Just have that have that uh, voice just going off in your head. Promo. 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 Harrys.com. All right, Stefan. Back to Lionel Messi, the saddest golden ball ever. It did seem like it was just a slap in the face to make that guy go up and... A slap in the face with the golden hand that the goalie won. <laughs> the goalie did win the golden gloves. <laughs> that huge golden Lannister hand. That is the worst trophy ever devised. It's like hamburger helper hand, but dipped in gold. He's dying. He's suffocating in the gold. So Messi helped set up seven of the eight goals for Argentina in the tournament. It's absurd to suggest he had anything but one of the best performances by anyone, and yet he didn't lead his team to victory. And it's just unfortunate that he happened to be born in a country where a certain player in 1986 led his team to a World Cup, basically on his back, one of the greatest performances on his hand, hand, head, feet. Um, And he'll just forever be compared to Maradona in this kind of way that it in this kind of stupid narrative comparative sports writer way i mean whether countries like argentina and brazil are more susceptible to this because soccer is so important to their national psyches i don't know but it is absurd i mean Lionel messi has done anything and everything that a football player can do in his professional career except for this except for winning the world cup which i would argue is probably a little bit harder today i mean there are more teams in the tournament there are certainly more good teams around the world. There are more development programs like Germany's um, in European countries. There's more money being spent on the sport. Countries in Africa, the United States, and elsewhere have much better teams than they did in the 70s and 80s in other parts of the world. It was a much narrower pool of great footballing nations that Maradona played in. Not to take anything away from winning the World Cup you, at any time. It's a tremendous thing. Also, there's no the home continent advantage has been eroded, not just with travel, but you know Germany basically builds a little Deutschland right there, Klein Deutschland Klein, right there Kleine in Deutschland. Yes, and trains there and lives there and never goes without schnitzel. So, yes, uh, this is one of the reasons the first time a European team won in this hemisphere. Um, Well, Mike, what if we were to rank uh, sports based on fairness or unfairness to criticize players for winning a championship? I mean, 
for all the dumb criticism that's come to various basketball players for not winning a title, it does seem a lot more legitimate to say, oh, LeBron, you didn't uh, win that title, you bum. That seems actually more legitimate than criticizing a player for not winning the World Cup. I think baseball would be the dumbest to yep. say, yeah. like, Ernie Banks, you you bum. Everybody's a bum, in my view. Um, you didn't win the, win the World Series. That's a good word, too. It is a good word, but... Do you think that's right? Where like where does where does soccer rank among among these sports? That's right. I mean, just in terms of one out of five, and well, the uh, players are on the pitch the whole time in soccer. But yeah, one player can affect what like twenty percent of the game. You know, a player who plays Messi's position isn't really supposed to be playing on the defensive part. So yes, absolutely. But you know, without him, they don't even come close to getting there. He's clearly the best on the team. And it's not like, I know they were criticizing him by the end, but some of Argentina's best chances or chances to become chances were not only off his foot, but clearly because of his brilliance racing down the side as he did that one time. I mean, you know, you have a few chances a game and, but for that cross in the, uh, what is it, 113th minute, maybe we're going to shootouts and maybe he's nailing a shot and maybe the criticism evaporates. So, mm, I don't know. I don't think the, as someone who's a, a little bit removed from soccer and definitely removed from Argentinian passion, it seems like a dumb, dumb thing to criticize Messi. Do you want Messi or don't you want Messi? I think you want Messi on your team. According to Opta, the stat provider, he had 46 take-ons in the tournament, which were the third most since they started counting, behind only Jarzinho. And the pop group AHA. (laughs) And I was going to say Maradona in 1986. There's Maradona again. But AHA did, in fact, have have more take-ons. They've had thousands in their -hmm. their long-storied Norwegian career. All right. um, Concussion in the final game, I think, was the most, and that too, the one with Christoph Kramer um, near the beginning of the first half. I think a lot of times you can do Monday morning center backing about how severe um, a concussion was. But this one was clearly so severe that, you know, the guy shouldn't have been on the field. It's not, you know, in retrospect that we're that we're saying that the shoulder that he took to the left side of the face just gave him severe whiplash. He was down on the ground. He, um, you could see it falling down. He had the fencing response where his limbs went kind of limp as he was going down. He was clearly unconscious. And then after about 10, 12 more minutes, he just fell to the ground of, you know, after staying in the game, comes off the field looking all glassy eyed. Um, afterwards, FIFA had to be supported to get off the field. FIFA said it's on the German doctors. Actually, Stefan, what did FIFA say? It is on the German doctors. Yes. So. Basically saying it's not it's not our it's not our issue. It the, is not what, possible what, for us to to adjudicate every medical decision on the sidelines. It is just not possible. This is up to the physicians for the countries. They are there to protect the players, and FIFA stands behind them with our protocols at all times. Mike enjoyed that. <laughs> it is it is okay. FIFA stinks, but it is kind of true. FIFA is the world governing body of soccer, and they can make rules. But I mean, P- countries are in. A light year's difference in terms of where they are on this issue. And it is a little bit different from, you know, the sideline evaluation in sports that have stops and starts and that have free substitutions are a little different. I mean, we get this in baseball, right? If a guy comes out, he's he's done for the game. So a little bit of sympathy, but this was uh, horrendous. Well, it's it's easy to, I think, pass responsibility on to 
largely where it belongs, which is team physicians and the culture inside these federations and these organizations. I mean, yes, you're absolutely right, Mike. Most countries are way behind where England is way behind where the United States has come in the last five years in terms of its appreciation for the severity of the risk of head injury in, in contacts. Congratulations to the, to the United States for concussing mm-hmm. way more athletes than any other nation and but, then realizing that was bad. <laughs> but, but where FIFA does have a responsibility and where they can exercise some authority is to actually apply the protocols that exist. Um, Owen Gibson in The Guardian earlier in the World Cup wrote about Alvaro Pereira's concussion, and he noted that FIFA held a medical conference in 2008 at its own headquarters in Zurich. And Well, how could it have been expected to go to a conference at its own headquarters? That's, That's the point. last place they would look. And people from soccer, rugby union... The IOC, International Ice Hockey, and the International Equestrian Federation, because you need to bring the horses in. It's always important to have the horses involved. Any player or rider suffering a concussion should leave the field immediately. The decision was ratified in November 2012 at the fourth edition of the conference. So one possibility that's been raised is to have a concussion substitution. They have a special concussion disabled list. In baseball now. So there is precedent for having... And I think rugby is moving toward the concussion substitution. Right. And so the idea would be take a guy off for 10 minutes. You don't have to use one of your three substitutes because there's a strong incentive for coaches just to send the guy back in because you only have three and using them on somebody who could maybe come back in if their head injury isn't all that severe. You don't want to do that. Um, So have a temporary substitution, 10 minutes, evaluate the guy. And then if he's okay, then at that point, send him back in and send the temporary sub back out. And there's all this hand-wringing about the laws of the game or, you know, that... Well, and coaches could take advantage of this by having a player feign injury and putting in a sub for 10 minutes to give him a rest. This certainly would happen. We know from watching the World Cup and any other soccer match that this will be taken advantage of and would be taken advantage of. But is that a good enough reason to not do something like a temporary substitution, which could be gamed, but could also be beneficial to players who have suffered these sorts of injuries. Correct. Um, let's finish by talking uh, about Brazil. And they they lost pretty bad, pretty badly. Um, if they had lost to Chile in the round of 16, um, when that shot hit the crossbar, if, they had, if it hadn't gone to penalties, I think kind of paradoxically, Brazilian fans would have thought like, oh, if not for that break, we would have won the whole tournament. They wouldn't have known how horrible their team was. <laughs> the future was going to be. Exactly. There was a great kind of tactical analysis by Michael Cox of Zonal Marking, who does these analyses after every game, that noted that um, the first three goals, just the beginning of that game, was just Marcelo, the Brazilian defender, just going forward <laughs> repeatedly, like over and over again, and just being you know beaten um, you know back on defense every single time, just not really getting the message that Germany seems to be going forward with impunity um, and you're not really doing much back uh, defending back there. It was just a total team collapse, sort of the opposite of Germany, Ken Early argued on a piece on Slate, that there was this magical thinking surrounding the team that we're at home, we don't ever lose at home, we are Brazil, we produce great players. We sing the and national this is anthem gonna, loudly. And this is just going to happen for us. We cry. And, you know, it seems like there is going to be a reckoning moment there about their system the same way there was in Germany. But the question is, is there the kind of mechanisms in place? Is there the organization that would allow them to return? Or do you think that this is just all an exaggeration and that 
you know, they'll they'll come back and they'll just be Brazil and no, be great. I think great. Our, our friend Frank Four on the New Republic's website argued that this is a reflection of complete corruption from top to bottom and malaise within the sport, which is run by corrupt bureaucrats, and that has trickled down to having ineffective development systems at a time when a country can't rely anymore on kids playing in the street to develop talent because you're competing against the billions that Germany is spending and the Netherlands with their sophisticated system and Belgium with their sophisticated system and England trying to replicate what other European countries are doing, though with no success so far. And um, as we talked about earlier, Germany and Spain have these super teams and these and these leagues where the national team players all kind of play together all during the year and this very um, sophisticated, you know, club structure. And so they get the benefit of that, too. And the Brazilian national team, they're all those players, it seems like, are always going to be spread all, all around the world and will come together in this more. And large and partly because the Brazilian league is a disaster because of all the, the same issues, lack of funding, corruption, blah, blah, blah. And it seems like there could be political repercussions there, Mike. I mean, Rousseff, the president, was booed heartily or whistled, snapped at during the final ceremony and elections are coming up. Is it, um, from what you've heard and read, does it seem like an exaggeration to think that there could be repercussions for her, um, you know, based on what happened in this tournament? I think that Brazilian politics are big and the World Cup is more a symptom than the cause. But of course... You know, journalists going there looking through the lens of the World Cup will see it the other way, and then they'll all have left by today. There's always going to be a little bit of the coverage that says, oh, Brazil was such a lovely host, and we love your cities, and we do love your cities. But there was a little better coverage of this World Cup and this international sporting event than most. Um, I don't think it was entirely missed. Like, Grant Wall, who's probably the best soccer writer out there, certainly the most prominent, did a lot of good socioeconomic stories. You know, NPR would always kind of supplement the Tom Goldman report with a Lourdes Garcia Navarro report about the collapse of the, and this seems, this is one of the uh, tragedies that seems directly related to the World Cup. There was a collapse of a piece of road that killed a couple of people. And this was one of those hastily built projects that didn't come in on time and maybe was done with shoddy work, workmanship. I will say that the trend of all these international competitions being awarded and doom and gloom beforehand, like it's all going to be a nightmare. Once again, it did not reach the most dire of predictions. But unlike Sochi, and unlike Athens Olympics, which was terrible long-term economically, but didn't have any stadiums collapsing. But unlike those, there was more in this of, there was more coverage of protesters. There was more coverage of some of the tragedies involved. And there really was more, more of a tragic element. And so I wonder about the next Olympics and the next two World Cups. And it doesn't seem to be in a good situation. All right, let's leave it there um, and end our World Cup coverage with uh, congratulations to Rich Helmethead. As you all know, Rich Helmethead is the winner of the Hang Up and Listen Bracket Challenge. Um, Rich Helmethead did have Germany over Argentina in the final, and Rich Helmethead should email us at hangupatslate.com to claim Rich Helmethead's prize. I did end up beating Fatsis and Pesca, but this was nothing to be proud of. None of us finished above the 45th percentile in the ESPN contest. Although, it should be noted that Mike Pesca filled out a different bracket in the internal slate contest. A lot of disagreement over whether bracket bigamy is okay if you're filling out different brackets for different contests. I say definitely not, but Mike disagrees. Really? You think you're limited to one pool? That's Mike is just sco- There's so much scoffing here. I'm, j- I'm a purist. <laughs> you're not a purist. I believe in what if you, what if you're minimizing your enjoyment. 
Exactly. <laughs> and what if you fill out the exact same bracket? What if you just submit the same bracket for various pools? Mike, I, is think, that okay? I think we're talking about the exact same thing. What is purity if not minimizing your enjoyment? Well, sometimes when you go to Las Vegas and play blackjack, do you always hit on every card no matter what? <laughs> that's a really <laughs> hit, ter- that's hit, a really poor hit. analogy. <laughs> well, if you're in the uh, hang up and listen blackjack table and you're in a slate internal blackjack table, <laughs> maybe soft seventeens get played differently. Who knows? That okay. I've totally I'm totally turned around on Thank this. Thank you. Yeah, there you go. Um I also want to put in a word to subscribe to uh, Slate Plus, our membership program, slate.com slash hang up plus. It costs just five dollars a month, fifty dollars per year. Um one of the things you get along with extra segments on this and other Slate podcast, um, we do other special bonus audio extras. So on Friday, I wrote an article about LeBron James. I immediately went into the studio and recorded an audio version. So you would have had it in time for your commute home on Friday if you want to uh, listen to my thoughts on LeBron in addition to your reading or instead of reading. Again, you can become a member at slate.com slash hangup plus. Please do so. All right, let's move on to our second mega segment and an as-told-to essay published in Sports Illustrated on Friday. LeBron James announced that he was going back to the Cleveland Cavaliers. That story, which was written by SI's Lee Jenkins, begins thusly. Before anyone ever cared where I would play basketball, I was a kid from Northeast Ohio. It's where I walked. It's where I ran. It's where I cried. It's where I bled. Holds a special place in my heart. People there have seen me grow up. I sometimes feel like I'm their son. Their passion can be overwhelming, but it drives me. I want to give them hope when I can. I want to inspire them when I can. My relationship with Northeast Ohio is bigger than basketball. I didn't realize that four years ago. I do now. LeBron went on to describe his regrets about 2010's The Decision, the televised spectacle part of it, not the move to go to Miami and team up with Dwayne Wade and Chris Bosh. He explains that he's grown up since then, that he doesn't hold a grudge against Cavs owner Dan Gilbert for writing that Comic Sans letter, the one in which he said that some people want to go to heaven without dying first. He wants to win a championship, LeBron says, for Northeast Ohio and inspire the kids who live there. This is a canny piece of public relations, one that, as I wrote last Friday, came across as everything the decision wasn't. It was sincere. It was heartfelt. It was not on television, crucially. Deadspin's Drew McGarry was a bit more cynical, saying that LeBron has learned to tell the sports world exactly what it wants to hear. Drew wrote that the NBA's best player is ditching a loyal group of aging teammates for a bigger salary and a franchise with better and younger talent. The difference this time, he believes, is that LeBron sold himself better, the optics were good, he put on a great show. So, uh, Stefan, where do you fall in the uh, LeBron cynicism rodeo? LeBron <laughs> cynicism. What's your decision on the decision, too? I have no reason to doubt LeBron's sincerity that he wanted to go back to Ohio, that there was something compelling about his upbringing, that he did feel some sort of psychic and personal debt to the people who helped raise him in this community, and that he wanted, he's realizing that he is now in his late 20s and he has an opportunity to finish his career and do other things than just play basketball and try to win. But at the same time, he wants to try to win, and I think that he genuinely does feel like to win something for Cleveland, which hasn't won a championship in 50 years, would be fulfilling for him and for this community that has supported him his entire life. No doubt that that is sincere. I believe him. Bracket that. Bracket it. But but I think that the way this was handled was no different from the way the decision was handled four years ago. LeBron has a gigantic entourage of media handlers and corporate advisors and agents and lawyers who were advising him 
Every step of the way, I assure you, they made a tactical decision when approached by Lee Jenkins of Sports Illustrated. Is this the way we want our message to be presented? What are our other options? It would have been perfectly simple for LeBron to say the same words that he said to Lee Jenkins, but instead of having them be funneled through the mouthpiece of Sports Illustrated, which gave him legitimacy and an editor, by the way, um, and just put it out on his website or release a statement or have a news conference and stand up and say, hey, I really want to go back to Cleveland. That's my decision. Here are the reasons. But they chose not to do that. They chose very tactically to find a way that would maximize his sympathy and maximize the appearance of doing the right thing. Is that a bad thing to do? No, it's really a smart thing to do. The question is, and I think we'll talk about this, is whether Sports Illustrated played some outsized role in enabling LeBron to have it the way he and his handlers exactly would have desired for it to be. You know, I think the difference between good communication, and let's let's call this one good communication, and bad communication, let's call the decision 2010 that, isn't that it's not communication, it's that it's good or bad. So all these phrases like tactical or advisors, you know, the last time around, it was such a shambles. You had to wonder who are these people advising him? And if you've paid attention to that question, Maverick Carter, if you've looked at that website over the years, if you looked at the, you know, kind of sixth grade sentence structure that that website often has. He has terrible media advisors. He has people who either don't understand or really don't know how to communicate. And just because you're rich and just because they're around you and just because we call them an entourage doesn't mean they know what they're doing. And I think that they were totally blindsided by the uh, decision 2010 and they shouldn't have been. And they haven't been able to do anything in four years to write that, to say the right thing, to beat that back. So they kind of do a 180 degree turn. I mean, whatever happened in 2010, it's on TV. This one will be print. We went to Miami. We're going to Cleveland. We had some fake charity around it. This is just for ourselves and talking about my personal decision. I mean, just everything was the opposite and it's being greeted as the right thing and Hosanna's. And we could talk about that. I mean, it's stupidly buying into a narrative again. I never blamed LeBron for leaving. And as much credit I give him for coming back, I would have given him just as much credit for staying. It's his decision. But I find just nothing wrong with him dealing with the problems of of modern media where they're going to jump on you if you do anything, especially as a rich young black guy, if you do anything that's seen as selfish or self-aggrandizing. So he was Mr. Unbelievably Humble, and now we all love it. So what you're saying is basically both moves were defensible, were legitimate, and you have no preference for the way that he did it either time. That's true. But I think that I think that the last move, I mean, there's such a thing as PR and there's such a thing as how is this going to be perceived? And they should have seen that the, the TV special and the decision 2010 and especially that smoke and mirrors light show afterwards was going to be pilloried. But they're terrible at what they do in terms of public perception. They at least righted that wrong, but it was pretty easy. If you've done everything wrong the first time, do the opposite. and Maybe you're doing close to everything right. And that's what they've done. So I don't agree with you that LeBron hadn't done anything in the last four years to burnish his public image. He tried image. to, but it never... I think back. it succeeded. I think that it that they tried and succeeded. And I think a big part of it, and I don't know if this was a symptom of his um, you know, improved public image or was the cause, was the Lee Jenkins SI Sportsman of the Year 
essay after he won that first championship a couple of years ago. Sportsman of the Year is this like austere Sports Illustrated tradition where in their own mind, at least, they're rewarding somebody for not just being a great athlete, but for being a good person. And this story written by Lee Jenkins describes how, indeed, LeBron is a great athlete and a good person, that he's learned so much from the decision that he's become a better person, a better man. And it's basically a kind of draft version of what he um, wrote and what Lee Jenkins wrote for this, uh, you know, 2014 decision. And you saw like in these commercials that he's done um, and there's there's nothing more canny and public relationsy than a like commercial than a television commercial where he's seen with his family, with his kids. Um, and I think people in Cleveland started to forgive him, started to like him more. People around the country started to like him more. And I think this was just the culmination of all of that rather than something that came out of the clear blue sky. But connecting it back to the original Jenkins piece, I think Sports Illustrated, you know, that gave them the end to get this big, whether you want to call it a scoop or whether you want to call it an acquisition. I thought that the criticism that Sports Illustrated took by Richard Sandemir in the New York Times was unfair. I thought that piece was a bit insufferable. It, you know, it's a tough decision for Sports Illustrated to decide, do you allow yourself to be co-opted in this way? And I think they were co-opted, but Sports Illustrated gets a lot out of it too. And I think it's a, it's a tough decision. I thought the Sandemir piece made it seem like it was an easy decision. Like, obviously, this is like journalistic malpractice, which I think it wasn't. Like, if, if I had this opportunity at Slate, which I never would, I think I would have taken the opportunity too. I, and it's I think easy it's... to get on your soapbox and say, I would never do that. But I think in practice, pretty much everybody would. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the clicks that Sports Illustrated generated for a new website, by the way, they want people to come and look at their product. And this was an enormous way for them to do that. This was a huge success. Someone posed the question over the weekend as to what would the New York Times have done? And I think the New York Times would have done this. They would have said, yeah, LeBron, we'd be happy to publish your statement in full, but we can't be involved in putting it together. And we can't have one of our writers put their name on it. But the New York Times edits op-eds, to be clear. They do. They do. They absolutely do. But it doesn't sit down with the writer of the op-ed and help them craft the final words. But that's, this isn't a bright line. It's a fuzzy line, right? I don't know how fuzzy it is. I think it's pretty bright. And I think the difference between asking LeBron James a series of questions and then turning that into a clear narrative, which is what Lee Jenkins did, is effect working as a ghostwriter for him. And putting your name on it, I think, is honest. The question is whether whether SI could have just said, you know, do your own statement. We will put it up there. No problem. But we're also going to write a story to go with it. There's plenty of time for context. And I think this is the, the second piece. It's like, why wouldn't Sports Illustrated just do a story? Well, because the news that day was, where's he going to play? What's he going to say? And he said, I'm going back to Cleveland. You, there's plenty of time for more of that. Lee Jenkins will have a long piece, I'm sure, in this week's issue of the magazine itself, the print magazine. To me, it's a very narrow question. Is, does Sports Illustrated look like it is working in the service, in tandem with LeBron James to craft his statement? And this is different from like Jason Collins. Jason Collins was closeted gay man his entire professional career. It's a very personal, moving story. Another Sports Illustrated as told two piece. 
Yes. Yes. But why is it different from every other as told to piece? Because this is a guy deciding where he's going to sign as a free agent. I'm not sure it rises to the level of meriting some grand as told to piece. And why maybe is this is as to- every as told to piece is is probably written by the writer after a brief interview. I mean, there's a long think history it's so of much this more in sports. Of course, there is. I'm not denying. If that Chancellor Parsons didn't as told to, no one would really care and no one would criticize the journalism at all. It's very true. Yeah, I just want to go back to the idea that uh, LeBron really did try. I mean, he did try to rehab his PR and his image. I think that winning championships are the things that did that. And I would liken it to the rollout of healthcare, where, you know, that website crash and that was just the optics were blamed as terrible. But now that healthcare seems to be working pretty well, you know, it's not the case that they got that right, but it is the case that that's not that important. So the optics of everything, the optics of the decision, LeBron's in this weird situation where he is the best player in the world. He knows that the, you know, the number one mark against him that he betrayed the city of Cleveland can be undone like that if he goes back to Cleveland. So how much, how seriously should he take that anyway? And as far as the journalistic question that we're debating, I don't think that Lee Jenkins wrote that 2013 article with any angling in mind. I think he wrote it because he thought that LeBron James should be Sportsman of the Year. And, you know, I kind of thought that LeBron James had a good case for it, too, because I think that all the criticism of him was so overdone. It's not just a corrective. I think he does embody whatever the idea of Sportsman of the Year is. And it's, you know, is definitely an, an old banquet at the Marriott Marquis wearing blazers. I get that. But he definitely embodied that the whole time. I don't blame Sports Illustrated. And I don't think they were being tactical. I think that they were writing their opinion about who should be the Sportsman of the Year. And it turns out that LeBron wanted to give this story to someone. And that was a logical Look, You just turned me to, like not criticize Sports Illustrated for doing this. But that being said, I think it's worth noting that they've pursued the exact opposite strategy with LeBron James that they did with Michael Jordan. They lost Michael Jordan. He has not spoken with him for 20 years because they put yep. him on the cover and said, you know, stop playing baseball in a more pithy way. I can't remember what the exact headline was. But with LeBron James, they seem like the coverage of him has been extremely positive. And is that sports? Is the difference there Sports Illustrated changing its strategy or that Michael Jordan is a sociopath and LeBron James is mature enough to say not by we can't judge it by anything he's changed about his idea of Sports Illustrated. But here's a guy who went back to Cleveland. Would sociopath Michael Jordan ever do a similar thing with people who said they hate him? I'm not talking about. Owner? I'm, ta- I'm talking about what they did with putting LeBron on the cover of Sportsman of the Year. I'm not talking about about this. I don't think. I think Sports Illustrated cases, could have killed LeBron with a cover saying you've screwed up the decision, and they didn't do that. But they wrote him as Sportsman of the Year in 2013, and they told Jordan to give up baseball, and that wasn't great. You know, I mean, give up baseball. That was That's a silly thing to say. But th- those are just based on, you know, journalistic choices, I guess you would call that. They're based on expressing an opinion and not on let's angle ourselves to uh, to be the amanuensis when this guy wants to pour his ideas out. I think that the practices and the exigencies of journalism have changed dramatically in 20 years. I don't think there is a chance in hell that Sports Illustrated would have run a cover in 2010 traitor exclamation point in all capital letters to describe what LeBron James did. I just don't think that would have happened. Plus, you're right, Mike. LeBron James is a much better guy than Michael Jordan is. I mean, LeBron James has proven to be a thoughtful speaker, an intelligent basketball player, a student of the game who works incredibly hard, who loves what he does. Doesn't punch his teammates. Doesn't punch his teammates. Thank you. No Hitler mustache. So, I mean, there's a, there's a qualitative difference between these two characters. 
can I make one final SI point and then we can move on to the mm-hmm. uh, actual NBA ramifications? The one thing that I thought was funny about this was the SI editor, Chris Stone, saying there were no conditions at all on the interview and they wouldn't have taken it otherwise, but also noting that LeBron's people looked at it before it was published. Like, isn't that the only condition that actually matters? In terms of journalism, like if that's not a condition, then what is? And also, like they mention at in the end of the piece, like LeBron's charity work. You really think that there were no the children? Like if this was not an as told to piece, you really think that the, the most Josh. important thing in uh, LeBron's announcement that he was going back to Cleveland was the children that he has a you know kids in, in Akron. Anyway, Stefan, what do you want to say? One last point I want to say is that let's talk about how quickly the narrative also can shift. Um, LeBron, nothing but Hosannas, right? Mm-hmm. Grew up, going home, the mature mm-hmm. decision, caring about yeah. things beyond his career. Next day, it's announced that he's only signing a two-year contract with an opt-out after the first year, purely related to the CBA and what's going to happen in terms of television revenue when a new deal comes down the pike and how much money he'll be able to earn under a new deal with a new contract. And yet, suspicion was immediately cast about his motives in signing a short deal. Uh, Our friend, my friend Don Van Natta, formerly of the Times, currently of ESPN, defended SI for the way that it handled the announcement. But after the contract news came out, he noted that on Twitter that LeBron was putting owner Dan Gilbert on a short leash. I don't think he's putting on a short lease. He was making a business decision. But every comment now that is being made about the contract is that, oh, maybe LeBron's not that sincere after all. Oh, maybe he's giving himself an out to go somewhere else. I think the the conversation about it has been a little bit more sophisticated than that. I don't think it has been. I think it's been a little bit more sophisticated. Okay, than a that. little bit. So, But it is interesting, the two-year contract and the fact that the CBA is going to come up for renewal in a couple years and that the maximum salary will increase the salary cap will increase. I think that's going to be a fascinating CBA negotiation because I think everyone on any side of the issue believes that the owners did very well in the last negotiation, getting um, player revenue down from 57% to 50%. And now the owners are going to be in position where you can say and do extremely racist things and have your franchise sell for multiple billions of dollars. And they're going to somehow have to conjure an argument that they're getting, you know, creamed and they're get, they need the players to make more sacrifices. You're also in a situation where conference finalists include teams from such markets as Indianapolis, San Antonio and Oklahoma City. Oh, but it's not fair. We need a tighter cap so these poor teams can compete. I'm already looking forward to the to the arguments that they're going to try I to conjure. I'm looking forward to CBA negotiations. Me too. Um, Chris Bosh decided not to go to Houston. So their contingency plan, the Rockets had played this so intelligently, everyone thought, that if LeBron didn't go back to Miami, Bosch was going to go to the Rockets. They traded Jeremy Lin for basically nothing um, just to free up the cap space Now, when for you Bosch. say basically nothing, it, literally nothing, right? I'm gonna no, get, they got, they no got I'm going to get into this a... in my after ball. Okay. Don't, oh, don't sorry, I won't it. spoil it. No don't spoil it. All right. So everybody thinks Daryl Morey, and I think I count myself with everybody, thinks Daryl Morey is the smartest general manager of one of the smartest. And he ends up out of this. You know, they got Trevor Ariza, but they don't get Chris Bosh. They trade Jeremy Lin, for, it turns out, for no reason. And Dan Gilbert, who is maybe the dumbest owner in the league, one of the top, one of the top dumb owners is up there. Jim Dolan just sent you a note of thanks. <laughs> he ends up uh, getting LeBron James back and gets three of the four 
number one draft picks of the last four years just out of sheer incompetence. It just leads one to believe that there's only so much you can do as an NBA personnel guy, that it's all about getting one of these top few players and all about creating the possibility that they might come to you. But then these decisions turn out to be, you know, capricious. They go wherever they want to go for whatever reasons they want to. And, you know, the smart guy can be dumb and the dumb guy can be smart. And don't they get a heat protected pick? How do the protected picks work? So if the the pick that the heat was going to send to Cleveland because of LeBron, if that's a lottery pick, it just evaporates. It doesn't become anything else. That's unbelievably illogical to me. I think I'm also going to talk about this in my afterball. Oh my god! It's gonna it's gonna be an afterball that solves after all, your, all your problems. It's now time for afterballs. Mike Pesco is noting that after Germany's victory, um, there was a Drew Brees moment, just like after the Saints won the Super Bowl. Drew Brees carries his kid onto the field and is followed by cameras. It's an adorable shot. You've probably seen it. Um, in this case, the cameras were following around Lucas Podolski, who didn't even play in the game, but by carrying his kid Lewis. He ensured that he would get a lot of uh, screen time. He also took a selfie with uh, Bastian Schweinsteiger and a selfie with Angela Merkel. LeBron, LeBron needs to take PR tips from this guy. Don't even play, and you're like the star of the post game. Pesca, you are opposed to children on the podium at news conferences. You're okay with this on the field? Oh, this is lovely. Although uh, Louis Podolsky, and let's name our afterballs this, Louis Podolsky was not wearing the protective earpieces. So they have he a lot just to doesn't love, Again, doesn't love his son. Doesn't love his son as yeah. much as the American athletes love their children. We're going to call him Louis? Louis, just call him Louis, Louis Podolsky's. What's your, what's your Louis Podolsky, Mike? I'd like to talk about the long and short of it, specifically the short. Few short players have been in the news. We've been talking about Lionel Messi. He's quite short. And our friend Maria Gutza. 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 He's only five foot nine, and he really, really looks like he should be in a boy band. Other short players who've been in the news, Jose Altuve, the shortest player in baseball, is just, he's, I think, the, uh, he has 3,000 hits and 800 steals. Now, he's doing great. He's leading the league in batting average, and he's an excellent player for the, uh, for the Houston Astros. All-star, Jose Altuve. But I wanted to talk about- He's like about... five foot five, right? Yeah, it's four foot five. Yeah, my friend Kenny Rosenthal's five four and a half. He was tweeting about how he's going to go back to back with Altuve to see who's really taller. Is he making Altuve don a bow tie? He should. Does that, I don't know if that uh, I don't know if that accentuates one's height. The bow tie. I would think that in fact your friend should use the necktie as it's lengthening. But what do I know? Anyway, Jose Altuve is second in the league in batting average and league, leads the American League in stolen bases. He's not. He's not first. So I wanted to talk about short basketball players because, you know, height in all these other sports, sometimes it helps and sometimes it doesn't. But in basketball, it really does help. So when there is a short basketball guy, we all have to pay attention. Isaiah Thomas, who not that Isaiah Thomas, the even shorter Isaiah Thomas, the current player was just signed by the Suns, an outpouring of love, seven million dollar contract. He's saying it's great to be wanted. And a lot of the articles writing up this uh, development noted that Thomas was the shortest player in the NBA, or some said among the shortest players in the NBA. So if he's not the shortest, who is? Well, the answer is Nate Robinson. But in this age of inflationary height statistics, I did a little deep dive. Who is shorter, Isaiah Thomas or Nate Robinson? Well, it turns out both are listed as 5'9". Now, if I was a short guy, I'd want to, in fact, emphasize how short I was. It helped Spud Webb and Muggsy Bogues endorsement contracts. We don't keep measuring these guys, but when they come out, the measurements are released. So Isaiah Thomas does, in fact, seem to be a legit 5'9". Height without shoes at the NBA Draft Combine in 2011 
five eight and three quarters inches height with shoes five ten and a quarter inch at the nets workout so the team brings him in he gains a quarter inch in height without shoes to a legit five nine without shoes and with shoes five ten and a half now as i isaiah thomas is listed as five nine but with shoes, he's 5'10". Almost every other player wanting to emphasize their height will take the bigger one. Not Isaiah. He's smart. He knows his brand. But the shortest player in the NBA, who is also listed at 5'9", is Nate Robinson. And he is not a legit 5'9". Here are the statistics on Nate Robinson. In the 2004 NBA pre-draft camp, height without shoes, 5'7.75". All right? So that is a full inch shorter than Isaiah Thomas, sometimes listed as the shortest guy in the NBA. By the way, Nate Robinson's height with shoes is 5'9", and he claims to be 5'9". 6'1 wingspan out of Nate Robinson. Isaiah Thomas wingspan, 6'1.75". Isaiah Thomas, just bigger than Nate Robinson in every way. Stefan, what is your Louis Podolsky? Well, after running to exhaustion for more than 120 minutes in the Maracana on Sunday night, the Germans and Argentines had to perform one more physical act. They had to climb a flight of stairs into the stands to claim their trophies and medals. The ascent and subsequent genuflection before an assembled line of FIFA blazers and grinning heads of state is one of the more grotesque acts in sports. You players of FIFA have sprinted for two hours. You have been tripped and cleated and bloodied and concussed. You have done this, of course, for our personal pleasure. So please now climb an endless bank of steps to receive the honor of shaking our smooth hands and smelling our fine cologne. The stair climbing is especially humiliating for the losing team who look like they're reenacting the dance of Zalongo. Aliens wearing monogrammed cuffs could have been greeting him on Sunday, and poor sad Lionel Messi would have, wouldn't have noticed. But it's just as bad for the winners, who no doubt would prefer not to have to ascend concrete steps on metal-tipped cleats through a phalanx of security. The Brazilian ones were wearing white gloves, which I thought was a nice touch, while fans reach through and around to grope them. When I tweeted my disgust at the ritual FIFA arrogance, a follower calling him or herself Sari Gamp, the name of an alcoholic nurse in Dickens' Martin Chuzzlewit, replied, no, it's from when the monarch had a royal box. And yes, indeed, the practice of forcing athletes to bow before the sporting aristocracy predictably has royal roots. The tradition dates to at least the opening of Wembley Stadium in London in 1923. The royal box was 39 steps above the playing field. Players climbed to be awarded their medals and trophies. There's some excellent British Pathé silent footage from the 1928 FA Cup final. You're going to play some of that for us now? between Blackburn Rovers and Huddersfield that includes a lot of shots of King George V and the royal family and the following intertitle, the king presented the cup and medals amidst tremendous enthusiasm. So tremendous enthusiasm, bowing and scraping before kings and princes. But how did this fawning bit of English subservience carry over to the World Cup? I poured over archival footage to find out, and I can safely conclude that naturally the English are to blame. The trophy presentations at the 1950, 54, 58, and 62 Cups held in Brazil, Switzerland, Sweden, and Chile all were made on the field. Then came 1966 in England and those fateful 39 steps at Wembley, at the top of which Bobby Moore wiped his hands before shaking that of the Queen. Mexico 1970, no climbing. Germany 74, climbing. Argentina 78, no climbing. Spain 82, climbing. Mexico 86, climbing, the first non-European climb. Italy 1990, no climbing, but a very Italian illuminated fieldside platform onto which Jurgen Klinsmann climbed to kiss the trophy. USA 1994, 
thrilled to be allowed to host the World Cup. We permitted the very anti-American act of climbing. It is worth it, however, to see the stunned Italians, who had just lost to Brazil on penalties, blow right by Al Gore in the receiving line. France, 1998, climbing. Then came two no climbs, no explanation, Japan, 2002, Germany, 2006. Maybe logistics, I don't know. Then climbing in South Africa in 2010, and again on Sunday, eight climbs to five no climbs since England hosted and hoisted the World Cup in 1966. Climbing at Wembley, which hosts the Champions League final, among other events, has become an even bigger burden on the players because the new Wembley that opened in 2007 has 107 steps from the field to the Royal Box, 68 more than before, which is an excellent reason not to let England ever host the World Cup again. Enough with the demeaning climbing. The FIFA Players Union needs to make this priority number two behind concussion policy enforcement if Sepp Blatter and Michel Platini and Angela Merkel want to shake Bastian Schweinsteiger's Weltmeisterhand. They should get their fat asses down to the field to do it. Woo! Josh, what's your Louis Podolsky? Uh, I want to talk about um, some non-LeBron NBA transactions. I think this was alluded to earlier in the show. This is the afterball that's going to solve all of your NBA transaction problems. Uh, my favorite provision of the NBA's trade rules is that both sides need to acquire something in a deal. So different leagues deal with that principle in different ways. This is a common thing. You know, it's a trade. You need to get something if you're making a trade. Um, so you might remember that the Oakland A's acquired starting pitcher Brad Mills from the Milwaukee Brewers for one dollar. I thought you were going to say Vita Blue, but go ahead. Uh, in Major League Baseball, in the NBA, they don't trade these solitary greenbacks. Uh, teams more often deal assets that don't really exist or at least live in a kind of purgatory state between existence and non-existence. So consider the Rockets' trade of Jeremy Lin to the Lakers. Houston wanted to dump Lin because his salary was taking up precious cap space that they thought would be better deployed on Chris Bosh. That did not end up working out. Bosh re-signed with the Heat. Um, but at the time, this seemed like a good move for Houston. The Rockets were so eager to get rid of Lynn's salary, in fact, that they also threw in a first-round pick and a second-round pick to sweeten the deal for the Lakers. So L.A. gets the player, they get the picks, Houston gets the cap space, which is all it wanted in the deal, but by rule, they need to get something more tangible than cap space, so Houston acquired the rights to Sergei Lashuk from the Lakers. Who is this Sergei Lashuk? He is a 32-year-old Ukrainian center. He averaged nine points and four and a half rebounds for the Spanish team Valencia last season. Lashuk was drafted by the Grizzlies in 2004, but has never played a minute in the NBA. He was traded to the Rockets in 2008. They traded him to the Lakers in 2010. They traded him back to the Rockets this year, 2014. Lashuk will never play in the NBA, and for that reason, he is an asset. He is the perfectly useless trade chip that can be thrown in to satisfy one half of any NBA deal. Sergey, may there be many more trades in your future. Another slight variation in this technique we saw when the Pelicans acquired forward Alonzo G from the Cleveland Cavaliers. The Cavs, again, as the Rockets did, wanted to open up cap space for the LeBron era. They need to acquire all of LeBron's friends, the Mike Millers and Ray Allens. So the Pelicans, they want nothing to do with Alonzo G. They don't want this guy. You went to Alabama? We don't care. But for reasons that are too complicated to get into, this would be a, a much longer afterball, they needed to have something to include in, a, in another deal with the Rockets, the one where they got Omer Sheik. But in this trade, the Pelicans trade the Cavs a second-round pick in the 2016 draft. They acquired that pick from the Clippers in 2009. 
So this actually, even though this was acquired in 2009, it's a 2016 pick, that still seems like it's a real thing. Do not be fooled, Stefan. This is not a real draft pick. The pick is 1 through 55 protected, which means that the Pelicans get to keep the draft pick unless it falls in the last five picks of the 2016 draft. If that does not happen, according to the transaction log, the Pelicans' obligation to convey the pick will be extinguished. So this, to me, seems like a circumvention of the rules, trading a pick that has a very slim chance of actually ever existing. But the NBA's trade rules, as we have learned, are made to be circumvented. Just ask our friend, Sergei Lashuk. All right, we love your feedback when we talked about it today. You can email us at hangupatslate.com. We'll also gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Subscribe to Hang Up and Listen on iTunes. You can find us at iTunes.com slash Slate Podcasts. When you're there, leave us a comment and leave us a rating if you desire. Become a fan of Hang Up and Listen on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Hang Up and Listen. Our intern is Chris Laskowski. Our producer is Mike Volow. And the executive producer of Slate's podcast is Andy Bowers. Remember Zelmo Beatty. Thanks for listening. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.